welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from here in the sunny climes of Western Japan. So I'm wishing you a good evening wherever and however you might be listening to my voice right now. And once again, thank you for tuning into Corbett Report Radio right here on Republic Broadcasting. And I'd like to once again thank RepublicBroadcasting.org for making this all possible and invite all of you to take a look at the RepublicBroadcasting.org homepage where you can not only find more information about this and other programs on this network, but you can also find out about the current ongoing pledge drive to try to raise money for the network. So once again, I hope you'll take the time to take a look into that. But on the subject of money, well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight on the program because, once again, I think it's easy for us to all understand, identify, and uh, and deal with the, the problems that are facing us to a certain extent. We can all understand, for example, that it is a transparent con game that the banksters are playing where they get to create money out of our pledge to pay them back. And with their uh, little magic bankster wave of their wands, they can create this money out of nothing and then spend it in the economy, which gets put back in their own pockets, and through fractional reserve lending, it gets ballooned out into infinity, and of course they can take that ballooning out, and they can even do crazy things with that, the collateralized debt obligations and all the other magic funny money that they create out of nothing, that they balloon up into these giant debt bubbles that then burst, and they get bailed out with our tax money for it. So it just keeps going round and round. And I think we can all identify and understand that that is a major, if not the major part of the problem. And then the question becomes, well, what is the solution? And of course, it's not a necessarily straightforward thing to say because there are many different aspects to this and many different ways to go about implementing a solution. And tonight we're going to be talking on those very lines. And we have a very special guest lined up for you tonight. His name is Matthew Slater. And he can be found at matslats.net. That's M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S dot net. And he is a, well, a, a programmer for one who's built the mutual credit module for Drupal for people who uh, run or maintain websites. You might have heard of that before. But he's, uh, he's thought and done a lot of research on the idea of time banking and lets and all of the alternative currencies and different ideas for circumventing the system of, uh, of money that they have built around us at, like a prison. And how do we free ourselves from that prison? Well, let's find out tonight with Matthew Slater. So, Matthew, thank you for joining us on the line tonight. How do you do, James? It's a great pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here, and I want to thank you for getting in touch with me and uh, introducing my, me to your, your work and your website. So um, this is our first time talking and the first time you've been talking to, to my audience. So let's find out a little bit about yourself and where, you, where you're coming from. Well... I've been programming for several years, but uh, I decided in about 2005 to build uh, some software for my local LET system. And uh, that was my first attempt at a real package, and it wasn't taken up. But uh, later on, Drupal came along in about 2007, and I realized that this would be the way, with an open-source content management framework, that I could just build the accounting and that then all the let's groups, because that's all I was thinking of at the time, they could build their own Drupal sites knowing that the accounting was being looked after and then adding in all the other features with the other Drupal modules. But as I got more and more into that, uh, a friend told me that uh, the financial crisis, which had broken by then, was actually caused deliberately. And I started watching movies like Money as Debt and Money Masters, 
and I realized that the work I was doing was very, very much more important. And I moved on to full-time activism. Which is, I think, a logical progression, and one that many of us have made, myself also having really woken up after watching The Money Masters and uh, some of the great work from Bill Stills. So let's get back into talking about that after this short break, and we'll be right back on Corbett Report Radio. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends, as we are here on this 25th of January, 2012, and we are going through some solutions to some of the things that are going on in uh, today's world. And, of course, one of the major problems that we are all facing with is money, money, money. So let's get into some of the history of this problem and how we can go about approaching the solution. And again, tonight we're talking to Matthew Slater of matslats.net. So, Matthew, perhaps tonight we could start by going over the definition of the problem and what you see as the core problem with the money system, the way that it's been constructed around us. Well, I would have to point everybody to watch Money as Debt. You've interviewed Paul Grignon, the, uh, the animator behind it, and it's a very, very lucid explanation of what money is. And then in the introduction as well, you've talked about how it's a bubble and money's created out of nothing. And I absolutely agree with all of that. But there are other problems that maybe I could point out. Um, if you have uh, the, the gradual increasing of uh, credit money as opposed to government money, and credit money is debt, then everybody in the economy owes more and more interest to the banks. And uh, this means we all work increasingly hard to pay the banks. And uh, this is uh, slavery in some people's books. But it also means we have to increase the uh, economic activity, the size of the economy, the size of the money supply. It's always going up and up and up, uh, commensurate with the debt as it goes up and up and up. And that means we have to make more and more products and services to be monetized. And this is extremely bad for the environment. Unless, of course, you can find a way to develop the economy without using resources. And I also like to point out that uh, the way that everything in our lives is increasingly monetized, it's bad for the soul, don't you think? We, we, we measure everything on one value scale more and more, which is how much money does it cost and how much is it worth? And that's not a human value scale at all. Our human values are being uh, wrenched over onto this other scale where uh, we measure things in money, and the more we measure in money, the more can be extracted from our local and personal economies. So I guess that's uh, just an addendum to all the technical things that you've said already. And absolutely, it's well taken. Um, I think you're exactly right. And, of course, the, one of the iconic images from that uh, Money is Debt series was the image of the people running on the treadmill trying to get the dollars that are coming down the line. And uh, if they don't get them in order to pay back the debts that they owe to the banksters, they fall off and, and die in that system. So people are just constantly chasing the dollars that are trickling down by the, uh, the grace of the banksters who, of course, have that, uh, that ability to contract and constrict the money supply by stopping their, their lending. And that's, uh, that's a dangerous system for so many reasons. But as I say, it's one that we've been over many times on this program. And I, 
assume that most people get it by now if they're listening to uh, alternative media like this. So the question mm-hmm. becomes, how do we get off of that treadmill and how do we replace that with something that hopefully would be actually a system that not only works, but actually is sustainable in the sense that it won't, it won't require feeding more and more of our life energy and lifeblood into that beast in order to keep it going. And there have been throughout history a number of different attempts at trying to, to circumvent this system or trying to build up something different. So perhaps we can go through the history of some of the complementary currencies that have existed uh, in the past. Well, the, it depends what you mean by complementary, because uh, there have been many different types of money system throughout history, and they weren't all complementary. And, for example, the, the tally stick system in Britain, which is covered in uh, the Money Masters, that was where the king issued a unique um, stick that was cut in half. Uh, he would issue half of it, and it would have some notches in it that would say how much it was worth. And then the stick would circulate as money until it came back to the king. And that wasn't a complementary currency by any means, but it was uh, a very just money system uh, where the money wasn't issued as debt, it was issued as uh, more like an accounting unit. But speeding forward to the, uh, the 20th century, during the Depression, both in Germany and in the US, there were many, many complementary currencies or local currencies springing up all over the place because uh, what a depression means is that there's a shortage of money in the system. All the money is being used to pay back the interest on the money. And so it's not available for the uh, nominal users of money, the, the people, to facilitate their exchanges. And so it's a very fertile environment, both in the 1930s and now, to create new local currencies. And again, uh, in the 1980s and 90s, when there were recessions, that's when lets and time banks came into existence. These are both with very specific designs, and they were outside of uh, government and politics. So they were designed to be run by community groups. And uh, you might not even think of these as currencies. They're mutual credit systems. And that just means that uh, all the people in the group or in the community have accounts, and they list the debts between them and add them up in order to get a balance. And then all the... uh, all the debts add up to zero. And that's uh, the simplest kind of money system, and it goes back a a long way in history as well, and you can find very similar things in other cultures. Well, that's right. Well, perhaps we should pause for a moment just to to, to clarify why that's, that's important as a different type of system and what fundamentally underlies that type of system as opposed to the the type of um, fiat currency that we have right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in a fiat currency system, the, the government or the commercial banks issue um, credits out of nothing and even charge interest on them, which is absolutely paradoxical because there's no real value behind it and there's no assets or commodities behind it, and yet they charge interest as if they're lending you something of value which could be earning a return elsewhere and yet it's completely unlimited in quantity. So that's the kind of uh, paradoxical nature of the fiat system we have today, uh, where these credits are issued and then they circulate as things in their own right. But this this other way of doing it that, uh, that was discovered on the Babylonian tablets, it's money as an accounting system. So as I said before, you just uh, record the debts between... Uh, different members of the system and then they they pay them off and then 
it's back to zero. That's what you might call a sustainable system. Because it, it is, but, but one would imagine that that's much easier to implement and much easier to do in a small local community where everyone knows each other and everyone specializes in a certain part of the economy and thinking of a limited economy, but thinking of the incredibly diversified global economy that we have now, it becomes much more difficult to wrap your head around that type of system. Uh, exactly, and it's very difficult to even think about local economies when in my local supermarket they're shipping in garlic from China. I mean, is anybody growing garlic around here? And what would we do for garlic if we only had local money to spend? Or if the, uh, if the globalist international money stopped working, where would we get our garlic from? We'd probably have to do without until some people figured out how to grow it. And this is a constant problem. Yeah. All, all, all that we rely on in our day-to-day -day lives comes out of the global economy. And uh, the local economy doesn't really provide anything that we need. It's just uh, resellers for the most part. And if you're lucky, a few farmers who are producing vast quantities of the same vegetable. And, of course, we have seen the, the conscious offshoring of so much of the, the valuable productive labor that actually used to take place in, in a lot of Western countries over the past few decades as the mm -hmm. kind of engineered collapse of the economy has, has gone into overdrive. And now we rely on cheap slave goods from China to, to make the economy work. And it's all become very, very specialized, and that means not very resilient. And so everyone now is dependent on this uh, very fragile global system functioning, and very few people would know what to do if it stopped working. And so uh, when we talk about local money, that's another way of talking about building the local economies, because what you're saying is, here's the local money, now, what can we buy in it, and what, uh, what interest can we stimulate in local manufacturing? Maybe we should talk about some specific examples of, of local currencies and, and how they really function. Okay, well, I have to tell you there's not a lot of thriving local currencies. There are very, very many attempts uh, and marginal things. So uh, the Let's Groups, for example... They're famous because you can always get massages on them, but you can't get the things you need, the food, and things like that. Uh, and time banks are um, they're, they're very much confined to services between very often poor people. The, the governments support the time banks projects in poor areas to try and uh, stimulate activity between people so they can meet each other's needs. And that's good, but they're not providing the, the basic essentials. And I always like to think that food is the first thing that you're going to want to buy in the local currency and that you want to get the farmers involved. And then you ask, well, what do the farmers need? And, uh, and you grow the, the local economy outwards from food. A wise idea, I think, especially because you're exactly right. I mean, that's if the system collapsed that we're, that we're using right now, the first thing that we would need is to, to exchange food, uh, which is obviously yeah. the primary good. So I think you're exactly right on that point. Mm -hmm. uh, there's many, many local systems running uh, in the United States and in Europe. And I was just about to mention the, the transition pounds as well in Britain. Um, there's, there's four or five transition towns in Britain that have launched their own currencies. But I wouldn't say they were thriving. Uh, and that they're, they're going by a... It's the model that's in fashion at the moment, and all these ones in the US, they sell local dollars or local pounds for about 
a pound or a dollar. And uh, they do 100% reserve banking, which means for every dollar they issue, they have one dollar in the bank, so that they're all redeemable. But uh, I have to ask, what impact does that really have on the local economy? How does it build resilience if you're just depending on the national money to back your local money? Mm. Well, that's a good point, and I suppose the uh, the point would be that one day you could de de uh, sync them and and use it as its own currency in and of itself. But obviously, how do you get there is is the major part of that problem. So let's continue talking about this on the other side. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. This is Corbett Report Radio, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Matthew Slater of MattSlats.net, someone who has uh, been thinking deeply about the, the issue of money and how to create alternatives and complementary money and experiments to try to get us off of the system that we're, that we're on right now and that we all know is a problem. So once again, I'll direct you to MattSlats.net for more on this and other ideas like radical giving. And once again, that's M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S dot net. And, of course, uh, Matthew, one of the things that many people who are listening to this broadcast will already be uh, familiar with is the idea of using gold as a backing for, for money. And that's one that's often proposed and has been proposed by many people. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that and uh, some of the, uh, the potential positives or negatives of that type of system. Well, it's always nice to think that you can exchange your money for something of real value because, of course money doesn't have any real value it's only really implied or agreed by the community so if you think gold is valuable then um, uh, a, a money backed by gold really means that you're circulating certificates with claims on the gold so there's a lot of gold in the bank and uh, that's sort of owned by everybody who's circulating the pieces of paper and the idea is you can uh, you could go to the bank and get the gold out and so you might use the gold then for international trade or for jewellery or whatever you want. And that's very nice, but it does, however, leave all the gold in the hands of the bank, or at least the rich people. So some people like Ron Paul are arguing that we need to move back to a gold standard, and Max Kaiser's arguing the same. And Bill Still, uh, of Money Masters fame, is saying, no, that's not even good enough. Because uh, any kind of commodity money, that's to say money that's backed by something solid, is going to be open to manipulation and cornering the market and all of those kinds of things so that the richest, most powerful people will be able to control the amount of money in circulation. So while you can talk about sound money and real money uh, as a, a proposal for reform, returning to the gold standard is surely an improvement on what we have now, where the money is just a vapor. But it's not uh, an ideal kind of money system. Stephen Zalinger, in The Lost Science of Money, talks about how these two ideas of money, the commodity money and the money as a unit of account, like the tally sticks, have been um, battling almost throughout history. And he says that with the formation of the Federal Reserve in the U.S., the commodity money theory won out. And uh, we've been stuck with that and the rule of the rich ever since. The rule of the rich, yes, the, the plutocracy that unfortunately adheres to any system where there is something that can be cornered and, and absolutely monopolized, which 
unfortunately has happened with gold in the past, and that's exactly why there has been so many movements in the past to to try to uh, get rid of that type of system. And um, people can look back to the the end of the 20th century, uh, or sorry, the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century for the um, movements that even in in the U.S. to at least try bimetallism instead of just gold backing, because gold was generally in the hands of the banksters, and it generally played into their hands if uh, if the entire system was backed by it. So, uh, again, lots of different things to to think about. But one thing that always concerns me about the idea of a gold standard is simply, I mean, even if we could get rid of the uh, the idea that the entire system would be from its very conception in the hands of the people who owned all the gold, even if we could get around that, it still limits the economy to the amount of gold that can be dug out of the ground, which I think is just a, a, a big loaded gun put to the head of the economy that could go off at any time. Well, this was um, why we came off the gold standard. Uh, as I understand it, the, the U.S. is fighting the Vietnam War. They needed more money than they had gold, uh, and so they came off the gold standard. And that's the problem with gold. It, it, it limits the amount of money that you can issue, which is exactly Although the in that point. case, it was a virtue, wasn't it? Yes, it was a virtue, but not if you want to fight a war and expand your power by... Uh, issuing money and devaluing the the money in people's hands. Right, well, but that's what I mean by it's a virtue. It, it prevents them from doing what they want to do. So if we can limit the government by tying them to gold, then they can't just go off and start new multi-billion dollar war, wars at the drop of a hat. They have to actually have well, a... There's still a way around it, you see, because um, even with a gold standard, you're doing the fractional reserve banking. So there's still um, much more money around uh, claiming the gold than there is gold. So still I'm not sure how great uh, a gold standard would be. Agreed. I think there are problems with that. So that's why we are trying to explore some of the other ideas tonight. And um, and there are there are many, many, many on the table, but they, they tend to come back to certain groups. So we've talked a little bit about mutual credit um, and uh, fiat money and commodity money. Um, how about the idea of trust? Trust. Do you mean um, not using money at all? Well, that would be one idea, yes. I, do, I mean, can we get off of the idea of, of money as a necess necessary part of the economy? Well, I would very much like to. As, a, as an advocate for complementary currencies, what I would really like to see is um, demonetization and uh, needs being met rather than all this down to the penny accounting that the money system encourages. But for me, the complementary currencies are a sort of transitional idea. And uh, I'm pushing very much in that direction, but I don't live by it, even remotely. I live mm. by gifting, as it says on my website. Mm. Interesting. All right, getting into the meat and potatoes of the conversation. So we'll be back with more with Matthew Slater right after this. If you want to get in, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443, 1-800-313-9443, and you can join this conversation. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to 
Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Matthew Slater of MattSlats.net. And if you go there right now, you'll see right there on the front page the concept of radical giving. And it reads, this is how through collective non-political action we can in one fell swoop forge bonds of trust and reciprocation in our communities, start building resilience to economic collapse, mitigate climate change, transform our consciousness, form a scarcity mentality to an from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality, clear out a lot of junk and clutter and make space, and force the economy back into step and start in a good direction. And I agree with all of those except the climate change one, which I think is a bunch of hokum that's invented at the international level. But if you want to believe in it, well, fine, fair enough. And uh, I certainly don't have anything against getting off a system that's dependent on the hydrocarbon economy, which itself is a form of chains that have been put around our necks by the Rockefellers and the other uh, oil kingpins who have made their fortune basically taking the lifeblood out of the economy and directing it towards themselves. So those vampires at the top, unfortunately, know how to corner and monopolize everything that that, uh, that exists. So the idea of radical giving as a basis for an economy is, I think, a truly radical concept. So let's get a little bit into this and flesh out what, what exactly does an economy based on giving actually look like, Matthew? Maybe I should reference, before we start, the, the Zeitgeist movies, um, to which I'm not a particular adherent, but they very strongly come out in favor of uh, destroying the money system or the money supply. You know, the, at the end of uh, the third movie, everybody's piling their money up and burning it in front of the Houses of Parliament. So I'm not really talking in that direction. But for me, a gift economy is one where people work in the way that they want, uh, doing what they want, and uh, receive what they need. And there should be a great abundance. We have, at the moment, a very great abundance in stuff. Uh, just count the number of spare bedrooms in your city, and you'll see what an abundance there is. And uh, that has been brought about, I acknowledge, by uh, the money system we have and by enforced labor. But I believe that uh, the abundance that's come about since the age of computing and manufacturing and things like that could be continued on a much more voluntary basis. And I'm not saying we should transfer to that overnight. I'm just saying the way to get out of the money trap is to work for free. And that's what I've been trying to do for the last three years. And it's been very good for me. I don't have a lot of stuff. I live out of a rucksack. I go and stay with people, users of my software and other kinds of supporters. And I'm not in the process of building a family or anything. But I do experience a kind of abundance and even leisure, uh, despite working as many hours a day as I do. And I couldn't be any other way. I see. Well, uh, I mean, that is truly radical, isn't it? The idea of uh, of getting off of the system in, in terms of actually not using the money, not needing the money, not taking the money, not spending the money, just uh, living yeah. an existence like that is is admirable. And I think one that many people would like to do. But as you say, things like uh, family and other, other ties make it almost impossible to, for many people to do that. I'm thinking of myself as a pioneer. And because I'm not constrained by all of those things, I can afford to be more radical, but I still advise everyone I meet to quit their jobs, or at least do one less day a week. 
And to live or with at the very least, transition into something you love instead of giving your lifeblood away to something you hate, which is uh, what I was lucky enough to be able to do earlier this uh, last year, I guess now, that uh, I was able to transition off of the teaching, which I was doing before, and into the website full-time, which is, for me, an incredible radical idea of, <laughs> of living a, a not bohemian lifestyle, but certainly it's uh, it's doing something and putting my passion and energy into something I love, which... Uh, to me, at the end of it, that's what a, a real economy would be about, is giving people the freedom to do what they actually love to do instead of forcing them to uh, to give their lifeblood away to some corporation slaving in some nine-to-five job day after day that they hate and only wait for the weekends. Yeah, but who would clean the toilets, James? Who would <laughs> clean the toilets? The people who love cleaning toilets, of course. Well, some of them. But also the people who love clean toilets... <laughs> well, that's that's actually more to the point, isn't it? And actually, and, and the point is, you, you don't have to pay people to do shitty jobs. Um, people do the jobs. Well, what's the language on here? But yes, absolutely. Oh, so sorry. That's, that's my normal speech. Um, but people will do the jobs that need doing as they need doing, and the community can reward them in whatever way they see fit, including whatever kind of money system they have. But it doesn't have to be so coercive and so industrialized as it is today. Agreed entirely. Well, we've got a caller on the line, so let's uh, let's bring him into the conversation. We have Werner from New Brunswick. Brunswick. So, uh, Werner, thanks for calling tonight. Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. Well, good I evening. Think, uh, most of the horses, they are already out of the barn. Uh, too much power has been given into the hands of uh, the multinational corporations and uh, the big players. And they basically run the show. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the food and uh, about the local food supply. This has been going on for decades. For example, I live here on the East Coast in Canada, and I think it's not any different on the, uh, in the New England states and in many other parts of the states where the farmers are basically forced off the farm. They are bankrupted because the uh, uh, successive governments have allowed the uh, 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 the infrastructure to be uh, destroyed, basically the processing industry, industries for the primary products, the farmer, and, for example, the woodlot owners, and so what they are producing, and the fishermen, what they are producing. A few years ago, for example, in Newfoundland, uh, they figured uh, it was cheaper to process the crab and the fish to process it in China that was being caught offshore in Newfoundland, and the uh, uh, the fish plants, they were providing, uh, even though it were seasonal jobs, they were uh, providing jobs for the local economy or for the local population. Instead of that, they ship the raw product out to China, get it, get the fish and the crab, get them processed, get them canned, and then ship them back into Canada, you know. If that isn't a definition of insanity, I don't know what is. Uh, and, uh, oh, no, but James, it's efficient. <laughs> this is what the money supply means. When it says increasing efficiency, it means less money uh, needs to be spent on it and more profit. Right. Yeah, but as I say, at the same time, there's completely, uh, you know, left out uh, the whole impact on society and on the people. And it's nice, you know, to opt out of the system. But there are roughly about 350, 360 million people living here in North America, you know who then still shall provide the necessities of life.
Well, that's the, really the question, and I think this all comes down to the way that we transition, because at this point, I think the, the economy that we're living in is some sort of magic trick. It's something that they've dangled before our eyes and convinced is, is real and is true, but uh, really, we have to see that pop, that bubble pop, that, that system collapse before people start uh, people, to realize. Uh, people have fallen too much for this, uh, uh, this uh, voodoo economy. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, they have built up an, an economy, basically, uh, what you said, like on a bubble. You know, like a house of cards, but it's got yeah. no more sol- solid foundation. The solid foundation of the economy is what value can be uh, produced and created right within a region. You know, you can mourn some of the people, some of the time, all of the people, uh, yeah. some of the time, but you cannot con all of the people all of the time. Well, we are the few who can see beyond it, so it's a question of what we do with it. But, Matthew, your thoughts on those? Uh, those yes, statements. I agree that we're, we're many decades too late, but uh, you know, we're facing a very large transition and probably a very rough transition. And the kinds of measures that I'm talking about seem extreme, but uh, compared to the, some of the scenarios that could play out, they're not extreme at all. And, and as well, I say, you know, different groups within the population, they were being picked off. Uh, over the last few decades, one group at a time. And the rest of the herd, they kept on grazing. Oh, as long as it doesn't get us, you know, let the, let the wolves have, have, uh, have at least some of their kill. That way they leave us alone. And Divide and conquer. I don't know if it's going to be possible to save 360 million people from uh, economic collapse. Uh, and by myself, I wouldn't attempt to. But what I'm trying to do is work with the people who do understand and who are already working on it. See, see this is what, uh, you know, we have to join forces and uh, try to, as much as we can, get the word out to the rest that are uh, basically think they're living in their, they can keep on living in their world of delusion, you know, get them to wake up and, and uh, uh, show them the consequences if they don't wake up, what will be the scenario. And, exactly uh, right. Well, that's what, programs, that's what programs like this are, are hoping to do, and, and certainly we've been getting, I think, the word out for quite a while now. I, I, at this point, I think it's more a question of people finding the information rather than the information seeking them out, because I think a lot of people have been exposed to this uh, at some point in some level by now, but different people come to it in different ways. But, Matthew, your ideas about, do you, do you see an awakening to this? Do you see a difference between when you started doing this and when uh, and, and now? in terms of the amount of people who are responding to this? Yeah, there's a bit more discussion, but uh, I'm not sure that I frame things in terms of a revolution of consciousness. I, I, I always see things in terms of two opposing forces, and one moves forward and the other one moves back, and then the pendulum swings. Um, so I don't know. I'm just trying to do my bit. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, look at the scenario. It's like they're sitting all in, in a boat, you know, and the boat is sinking. You know, it's taken on water. They're just only about uh, uh, 10 or 20 feet away from the shoreline. And nobody wants to jump into the cold water and, and abandon the, the sinking boat, you know, and face the cold water for, for, for a moment. But in the meantime, the boat is drifting further and further away from the shoreline. So the chance of surviving, if people don't, uh, to, don't make a, a decision and jump into the cold water, as long as they can reach the shore before hypothermia, you know, takes over. That's about... Uh, well, lots of people are making the argument for transition, and they're saying that uh, actually it should be better. 
than the, the kind of lives we're living now. But so I don't think they're convincing enough people. And uh, the, people think that transition means we'll all have to make do with less. And no one wants to lead on that. Uh, look, North America, uh, the population density that's in North America, it's only about uh, well, maybe a, a little bit uh, more than one-tenth of what uh, in uh, some of the dense populated countries, uh, what the population density is there. There's a, here in North America, the people as a whole, they have about uh, pretty near ten times as many resources per capita as they have in the rest of the world. Not maybe except from uh, from Australia and uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, from uh, Russia, you know. But when you look yeah, at it's a super abundance. Yeah, and as I say, all it takes is get the people again uh, into productive activity, you know. If people aren't working towards it, what are they doing? All right, Werner, we'll leave it there. Thank you again for that call. That's a, a lot of good points there. That I don't think we're in disagreement in many places there. It's just a question of the transition and how we go about doing that. But, um, but in the break, uh, Matthew, we were talking about the idea of uh, economic collapse and, and what, might, uh, what that might look like and how maybe we could get people uh, to, to finally start thinking about this if the collapse ever happened. But, but as we've seen over the past several years, they've just been dragging it out and dragging it out and creating more of their, you know, funny money out of nothing to basically inject more heroin into the system, to use an analogy. And, uh, and it is a question of whether they can continue doing that indefinitely. I mean, do you think that there's any, going to be really one of those days where we wake up and the, the entire system is in crisis, or do you think they could just drag it on and on and on so that we never actually have to transition into something different? No, they can't drag it on and on and on because there isn't uh, the oil to support it. Um, there's two choices. They can either run the economy down and gradually take and take and take all the money and value out of it, or they can crush it. And uh, I don't know if or when they'll decide to crush it, but I'm very grateful that they haven't done so yet in a way because it's, it's allowed me the time to write and issue the software. It's, uh, it's making my career. That's right. Well, we, we should talk about the software and what it actually does so that people are at least aware of that. Okay. Um, I, I said before that Drupal is a content management framework, and that means you, you bring in third-party modules, very often free open source, and you plug them all together, and you have a, a functioning community website. And that's the theory. So um, most of my work is revolved around one module called the Mutual Credit Module. And all of that does is, uh, for, for every user on the system, they're able to pay other users. And it keeps a log of those payments, adds them up, and presents the users with uh, the balances. So then things like balance limits and possibilities for automated transactions for taxes and things like that. Um, but it's very, very simple, and that's, that's all you really need to run an economy, is an accounting system within the context of a community. And so if I've innovated at all, it's only to say that, look, here's your own local social network, now add an accounting system. Right. So, so really, I mean, the cart before the horse, you need the, the local uh, system in place before you have the, the accounting system. 
Oh, definitely. Lots of people have got in touch and they've said, I really, really want to start a local currency and they download the software and they install it because it's, it's more or less that easy. Uh, and then I don't hear from them again because they don't have a community or they don't have any governance processes uh, and they don't have the, the trust that's needed to begin trading. And it's so easy to set up a website now that anybody could do it and, and nobody feels inclined to join. You know what I mean? After... After any meeting you have, somebody says, let's set up a website, and, and there's just too many. And what we need is a, a definitive local community website for every uh, parish, in my opinion. And uh, all local matters can be handled on this website, and you can have your main local identity on this website, and also uh, a local payment system. So that's what I'm working towards, and then networking them together. Because, of course, you can't spend one parish's local currency in the next parish because it's got a whole different set of trust arrangements with it. And what we need to do is uh, set up networks between these local currencies so that they acknowledge the value of each other's local currencies and, uh, and they can effectively trade between them. So that's and in effect, we create an entire, an entire system completely parallel and, and not touching the one that already exists that, that really does reflect the values that we have. Well, well, this yes, is, exactly. I mean, yeah, well, this is where the rubber meets the road because there is a lot of ideas out there, but until people start putting together the community that makes this possible, there is nothing there. There's just a website. So, so again, this is where people's uh, backs come into it, not just their hearts and minds, but actual labor to, to get this together and to do the work on the ground. But on that note, we'll come back to wrap up tonight's episode again with Matthew Slater right after this. All right, welcome back, friends, to the closing minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. Tonight we've been talking to Matthew Slater of matslats.net. That's M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S.net talking about alternative currencies, complementary currencies, different ideas of money. Do, do we need money at all? And uh, I think it would be appropriate perhaps to finally uh, let people know how they can get involved and what kinds of things that they can be doing or joining to get involved in this system. So, uh, so Matthew, let's, let's direct people to some places where, uh, where this is already going on. Okay, well, there's some networks that you should know about. It's much, much easier and more appropriate to join an existing local community than to set one up for yourself. So what you need to do is ask around for your local Let's group or your local time bank, or you can go to uh, www.ces.org.za, and that's one of the biggest mutual credit networks in the world. It's completely free, and uh, many Let's groups and time banks have migrated onto that platform. So you might find one near you. They've got about 350 exchanges around the world. And then, of course, in the commercial sphere, the, the equivalent to it all we've been talking about is business-to-business -business barter. Uh, this, uh, this industry has a rather poor reputation, in my opinion, and uh, it hasn't really penetrated very far into the economy. But if you run a business, then anything you could do... Um, in exchange, uh, goods for goods, services for services, is a way of demonetizing what you're doing. And there are rules around that uh, for tax. Uh, and there are also barter systems that you can join to help with the accounting and help with the tax. 
But of course, you could do it informally as well. Not that I would advocate any kind of tax dodging. No, so there's several not. options for people to do. Absolutely. All right. Well, excellent. And I, I certainly do hope that people at the very least start looking into this and, and taking the ideas seriously and looking at different ways of doing it. Because as I say, we all know the problem, but uh, the solutions are harder to implement and thus a lot of people give up at that point and just wait for someone to come from the sky to hand it to them. And unless and of you put some of your own back into no it. there's no local money system, then you can always work for free. Do things for free. This is called building up social capital, and it's the only kind of capital that's going to survive the transition, according to some accounts. Well, exactly right. And if we don't imagine the un unimaginable, it will never be possible. So that's exactly the point. And once again, um, I, I think certainly a lot of people do respond to this message, and you'll be pleased to know I've already got one email into the website from Ed saying, uh, can you get Matt Slats on again? Great show. So. You already have a fan base. <laughs> okay, great. So, once again, Matthew Slater, mattslats.net, M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S.net. Thank you again for all the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Good night. Okay, there he goes, Matthew Slater of mattslats.net. Uh, once again, if you want to take a look at his work and what he's uh, writing and talking about, it's M-A-T-S-L-A-T-S.net. So, there you go. There's another idea for a solution to the problems that we have. Problems are a dime a dozen, solutions are priceless, so I hope that uh, people will start taking a look into that. And on that note, of course, that will wrap up tonight's Wednesday night edition of the broadcast. Uh, tomorrow night, as usual, on Thursday nights, we'll have James Evan Pilato from foodworldorder.com to go over all the latest from the realm of food, health, and the environment. And then Friday night, we're going to have Corbett Report uh, radio highlights to go over some things from the past on corporatereport.com. And this week, we will be looking at different ideas for monetary reform that have been proposed on corporatereport.com in the past. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Until then, thank you again for listening, and take care. <laughs>